All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I am joined, as always, by my friend Andrew Pettiprin on this episode of What a Week. And also, we have a guest with us today. This is Lauren Spahn, who is coming to us from, I think, Washington, D.C. today. Uh, but Lauren is a Harvard graduate and currently studying, or as they say across the pond, reading for a DPhil in history. That's a doctor of philosophy uh, for you American types out there. Uh, at the University of Oxford, and she's headed back there very shortly, I think, across the pond to resume her studies. So we wanted to grab her while she was still, you know, not too far from our uh, our time zone here, and bring her on the show to talk about a bunch of interesting things today. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thanks, Zach. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, very excited to have you on. I know that we have a lot of common interests, and I'm excited to dive into some really interesting discussions today. But before we get to all the really, you know, high stakes discussions that we have lined up. I have a question for you. And since Andrew is also in Oxonian, I'll extend this to Andrew as well. What is your favorite pub in Oxford? Oof. I knew that was coming. I suspected with an Oxford-related question. I'll have to say the Rosen Crown, which is sort of north on Banbury Street, about half a mile from the city center. And the reason I like it so much is because it's one of the few independently run pubs in Oxford. So it's got a great family feel and um, is just kind of far away enough from the the central buzz of things that you feel like you have a bit of an escape. I do like the independent run pubs in Oxford. One of the surprising things or one of the most surprising things to me when I got there, I thought they would all be independently run, that that would just be the default model for an English pub. Yeah, And I think it certainly is in the American imagination. And then you'd get there and just realize that these are all just Green independently King. named franchises <laughs> of this big national <laughs> pub conglomerate and that was always a little bit disappointing so i definitely yeah. share your enthusiasm yeah. for the, the independent th- uh, yeah. pub. it's a kind of chestertonian response i would say yes. the kind yeah. of localist yeah. yes absolutely andrew how about you well it's been a long time since i was in oxford so i hope my favorite pub still exists and it's the turf um that was always my favorite it was pretty close to my college, and uh, it was great to sit outside there when the weather, weather was nice. And even when it wasn't, they, uh, it w- they had heaters and stuff like that. I always loved the turf. So uh, I had no idea, though, guys, about the, um, the pubs not being independently owned. I, I didn't even never considered that. How interesting. What about yeah, you, Yeah, I don't. Uh, so my, my answer is not very interesting. I like the Eagle and Child. Uh, it mm. was just... Uh, I don't think the Eagle and Child is independently run, although I could be wrong on that. But I just liked feeling like I was in the footsteps of the Inklings and, you know, sitting in the back rooms of the Eagle and Child thinking, I wonder where Lewis and Tolkien would have sat as they talked about this and that. So it's not very inspiring, uh, not very imaginative, because I feel like that's a pretty default answer. It's definitely like on the stop of on the list of stops you have to do in Oxford as a tourist walking through. Uh, but I definitely like the Eagle and Child. That was probably my favorite. That's All right, another great, question. Yeah. Another question for you guys. Similar in theme. What is your favorite college library in which to study? Or you could just go with the bod, like the the university bod. Well, I'll go. I'll go first. Then Um, I very. I I think I only ever studied in my college library among all the college libraries, Maudlin. Yeah, but most of my studying I did either in the bod or in the Taylorian, which is the modern languages library. Um, cause my, my degree was in the modern languages faculty. So that is where I mostly was. I, I really couldn't tell you anything about any of the other college libraries. I don't think maybe, maybe new college, maybe one or two others. I don't know. 
That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. This is making Lauren's me think, sad. I, this is definitely yeah. a worthy question. Lauren's like thinking and thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well first of all, the, Lauren, you've, you've had a COVID hamper experience. So say, like exactly, how much, yeah. how much did so that I, shut down your library enjoyment? Oh man. The, when I went to my college library to give you some context, there was a lot of caution tape around many of the desks and chairs to make sure people were properly social distancing. And this was, you know, after a good six months of them being just completely shut down. So we were we were lucky at Wadham College to even like see the caution tape. I didn't because of this, I was there, you know, fall of 2020 through summer of 21. Didn't really get a chance to do a lot of exploring, but I still managed, especially in the Trinity term when things started opening up again, uh, at least beyond 1984 levels of shutdown. <laughs> um, I got to check out, uh, let's see, the Teddy Hall Library, which is really cool because it's actually an old church that they've since converted into a study space. So you walk in and you can still see the stained glass windows and even climb a very long and slightly suffocating spiral staircase up to the top and like nice, look nice. out. And so that that's nice. I think it's a good blend of the kind of uh, subliminal sacredness that seems to kind of seep through a lot of corners of Oxford. That's a good answer. I have not been to uh, to the Teddy Hall Library, I don't think. Uh, I did a lot of my studying in my college library. I went to Christchurch. And the Christchurch Library is beautiful. So it's just inspiring to be surrounded by all of these tattered book covers. And it, it looked almost like a miniaturized version of the gigantic library that the Beast builds for Belle in the cartoon, The Beauty yeah. and the Beast. So so much smaller scale, but similar in the sense that there were there were high... Uh, high ceilings and high walls obviously covered in books and little spiral staircases to go up and get the books or the sliding ladders etc so just very very sort of quaint and charming in that sense but my favorite story from the library i may have told this on the podcast before so andrew this may be a story that's familiar to you but i did my thesis on reinhold niebuhr and um i was looking for a couple of books of his that were reputed uh, according to the university, the Bodleian Search reputed to be in the uh, uh, under the care of the Christchurch Library. So I go there to the section of the shelf where these books are supposedly, according to the uh, supposed to be, according to the Bod Search, and can't find them. So then I find the college librarian and share that I'm looking for these volumes and I don't know where they are. So the librarian does a search and then comes back to me a few minutes later and basically tells me that these books have been stored in the basement because nobody, nobody reads them. So they had no use for them on the shelf anymore. So they destroyed them in the basement. Uh, and that was a pretty key moment. I actually mentioned that in like the foreword to my, what ended up being my master's thesis that like what, what, what I was trying to do in the thesis is recover this idea of Christian realism from the bowels of the academy where nobody reads it anymore and nobody cares about it. So it was a very metaphorical uh, sort of inspiration for, for my work. My least favorite library in which to work was my department library. Andrew, you mentioned you did a lot of work in the modern languages library. So I don't know, um, I don't know how their library was, but the DPIR library, that's the Department of Politics and International Relations, absolutely terrible. It's one of the ugliest buildings in all of Oxford. It's like so, it's so emblematic of this 1950s, 1960s turn towards social sciences uh, and just building our utopia and moving away from beauty. And so it's just a, just a complete form over function, utilitarian statist type of building. And that's where the DPIR library was. A lot of my work was there just because that's where a lot of the books were. And so it was easier to just study there and read a couple chapters of, you know, relevant chapters of a book 
instead of hauling it all the way back to a different library and whatnot. But I didn't like doing it. My other favorite was probably the Radcam, you know, that like iconic, mm. the iconic uh, circular building designed by Wren, I think, um, right in the heart of Oxford. That was another favorite of mine. So definitely a lot of missed memories in Oxford. I have dreams one day of maybe going back and doing like a, a defill in theology because I think it'd be just super fun to wander the halls once again and just dive into books full time. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the Beauty and the Beast connection at Christ Church because in my knowledge... Christchurch has two other fantasy connections, one being Lewis Carroll, yep. um, Charles Dawson, right, who is a mathematics yep. tutor there. And there still is this really adorable independent shop called, you know, the Alice, Alice's yep. shop yep. right across the street. Yeah. There's my Chestertonian <laughs> localism coming out again. And, and then the second connection is um, the staircase in Harry Potter and the Harry Potter yes. films that leads right up to the Great Hall. It's actually in Christchurch. Yep. That's so, right. yeah, one of the reasons why people like to claim that Oxford and not Cambridge is actually Hogwarts. So right, I, think, exactly. I think both places yep. still manage to, to cash in on the tourist draw that that brings. That's right. I have a story about that, Lauren. Actually, when yeah. I was there in, I believe it was 2002, um, I was going with a friend to Evensong at Christchurch and walking across the quad and there was Daniel Radcliffe. Right there, no little, little Daniel Radcliffe. They were filming, I think, the second <laughs> wow. Harry Potter movie at, oh, that, wow. at that time, and uh, yeah, um, it was it was right there. So, so you met I, Harry Potter. I was living, I was living in this, you know, in the making of this, <laughs> what would become for you this like iconic, you know, uh, yeah. this iconic memory or something, right? Wow, I love that. That's cool. Well, when I was there, it was very frequent that that tourists would be, you know, clogging the steps up to the Great Hall as we were trying to go up to our dinner. Um, because they wanted to take pictures and pose where, you know, this scene happened in Harry Potter, et cetera. I don't profess to be a Harry Potter fan. I've actually never read the books at all. And I've seen probably half of the movies. So I'm not really, I'm certainly not a super fan and probably don't have as much appreciation as I might, uh, as one of you might for the, the location, uh, and all that, but is it fun, a fun place to be nonetheless? Cool. Well, that's all I had for the 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 all important questions about Oxford. Um, Lauren, what can you tell us a little bit more about what you're studying there and what you're hoping to do for your DPhil? That might be maybe more useful information than you know favorite pub or favorite library. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We'll see. With the way that people tackle studies at Oxford, it certainly varies in terms yeah, of what gets true. emphasis. Yeah. So let's see. I when I was there from 2020 to 21, I did a master's in intellectual history with a focus mostly on 19th and 20th century Anglo-American philosophy. And I ended up writing my dissertation on the idea of meritocracy in post-World War II Britain. And going back, I've since taken a gap year and will be returning to start the D-film, which as you mentioned, Zach, is like the fancy Oxford term for PhD. I'll be resuming studies in the kind of same modern timeframe for US-UK intellectual history, but I'm really interested more in like the ideas of progress, what progress means, and how it's related to philosophy of history, as well as um, secularization and the sort of broader disenchantment of the Christian cosmos into the kind of cold, hard atoms bumping <laughs> universe we find ourselves in now, yep. which is interesting because this gets to a lot of the things we'll be talking about for the deep dive. Uh, later in the show. So we'll be excited to hear some thoughts from you guys on the same topics. 
Yeah, we do have a close read that is all about progress, uh, and Lauren has selected that, so uh, I'm looking forward to hearing her thoughts for sure. Um, Lauren, we should have had you on the show last week because since you you wrote about post-war meritocracy in British society, you probably would have had some really interesting insight into what we talked about in our sort of banter section last week, which is, which was sort of the monarchy and where we go from yeah. here. Uh, obviously the passing of, we talked about this last week, so I won't, I won't regurgitate everything I said, but I would love your thoughts just very quickly. We talked about how the passing of the queen is a real watershed moment for the British people and how she represents a bygone era of uh, service over self, of country, mm. over uh, individual. And we're not sure if Charles can carry the torch. And uh, regardless of what, we're really regardless of how well Charles carries it, we're not sure who beyond him, maybe William, but uh, maybe not. The royal family is obviously having a lot of problems itself these days and a lot of internal drama. So we're really not sure sort of where the monarchy goes from here and where the British people go from here. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, it will be interesting to see that unfold. But do you have any thoughts? Yeah. Oh, man, definitely. So I think one of the things that I found most interesting coming from the master's dissertation was this idea of, if not aristocracy, if not a kind of sense that social status gets passed from one generation to the next, what is the force that will keep people humble, basically, <laughs> like aware that they have a kind of obligation to the common good and that they are where they are and they have the kind of privileges that they have, not mm -hmm. by dent solely of their own merits, but also as a result of the things that they were given which in the best case scenario would sort of inspire a reciprocal sense of duty and obligation to use those privileges um, for the good of the country, for the good of the family, for the good of those who were not able to enjoy similar privileges. And Michael Young, who was the very interesting sociologist and social entrepreneur who first coined the term meritocracy in his 1958 dystopian satire, the, the Rise of the Meritocracy, which is a great book, by the way, and absolutely hilarious. And more people should read it because <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Um, but it's, it's interesting because he, you could tell, was, was sort of nostalgic for the kind of social solidarity that came with the, um, the kind of aristocratic family-based rule that had been in place before educational reforms really around the time of the First and Second World War instituted a more meritocratic um, system of education that he was then satirizing in his book. And, and I think you see this particularly in the U.S., just to kind of flip sides of the Atlantic for a bit, with people like the Harvard um, political philosophy professor Michael Sandel, and mm -hmm. certainly at Yale, um, Daniel Markovitz coming out with critiques of, you know, this is what happens when we have a class of meritocrats who mm -hmm. end up in these elite jobs thinking that they got there by picking themselves up by their bootstraps, you know, and like they've earned all their privileges. What do they owe to anyone else except this kind of like single-minded um, intensity for keeping up the climb? And so I think maybe what we're seeing with um, the monarchy now is Elizabeth was a very powerful and I think crucially personal representation of that old order, right? And the monarchy itself as a family does kind of give us this continuing um, symbol, if you will, of like, wow, a kind of duty-based, as you were mentioning, Zach, like obligation that is just kind of given to us and that we didn't earn, but are nonetheless sort of 
founded by. Mm-hmm. And and I think the Queen's personal charisma really did matter. And, and so it'll be interesting to see if that same kind of symbolic weight um, can be carried by someone like Charles, who with really no help from the Crown Netflix series <laughs> does not command the same amount of, of even love and respect, right, from people around the world. So, yeah, yeah we'll see. But your use of the word charisma is interesting because my understanding of Elizabeth, and I, I freely admitted to Andrew last week, I'm certainly not an expert on the royal family, certainly not on her reign. Most mm. of my ideas of her and knowledge about her come from watching The Crown, which I thought was a great show. Yeah. Um, but she was not a she was not a charismatic person. Like, for example, Bill Clinton is a charismatic mm. politician. She didn't she yeah. didn't enjoy working a room. She was terrified when and rather disgusted at, at points when President John F. Kennedy comes to visit visit uh, England at one yeah. point in the TV show <laughs> The Crown, and yeah. she was always reticent to sort of um, to sort of be the charismatic person in the room because she that just wasn't her. And yet, I think because of that sort of personability, because of that sort of that humility, and yeah. the way that she bore her aristocratic, we'll call it noblesse oblige, uh, humbly, I think sort of endeared her to to Britons and certainly to the world. Um, so it's interesting because I think that, you know, Charles might have, eh, probably not, but I think other royals have had more sort of classic charisma, but, but been less effective at, yeah. um, at sort of carrying out the duty bound uh, ar- aristocratic uh, obligations mm. that you mentioned, Lauren. You, I wonder you may if remember. Charism, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I wonder if charism would be the better word then than like oh, straight yeah. charisma. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, charisma is probably, it's probably like etymologically correct, but when mm. I hear it in my modern American context, I think of someone who's just like really extroverted and loves work in a room and is totally, you know, the, yeah, yeah, social butterfly, yeah. et cetera. I was just going to say, Zach, you may remember since you were, you raised the crown that, you know, at least in, in the crown, Elizabeth's reign is always kind of depicted as contrasting with the failure of her uncle who abdicated, Right. And he was the guy who worked the room. He was the charismatic guy, you know, who was Mm -hmm. ultimately a failure, who ultimately like was his charisma was really just egotism. So I think like, at least in the show, and of course, all all of the characters are caricatures, but I mean, I think that there may be something to the way that she's depicted in the show as in a sense, like wanting to stamp out maybe even what, what is within her that might might overtake kind of the crown itself, right? So, I mean, it is like this 70-year reign has been one that has commanded respect because she has just sort of always been in command while not letting her personality sort of be the source of her authority. I think that's really interesting. And I'm reminded of the ways that I was talking about this with some of my friends that Queen Elizabeth is just like such an interesting example of the feminine genius, right? Because she's just there. You know, she is stable. She is the mother of a nation. And she doesn't have to be, you know, in the front, always like working the room like someone like Bill Clinton would be. She actually gets her power and her presence from being the staid, sort of sitting back and then offering the quiet, proper, and oftentimes devastating word of intervention when it's needed. And uh, it's just interesting to reflect on how her death now, it really does feel like the world has lost a mother. And I think a lot of that sort of quiet confidence in just being 
without having to make a great show of of that kind of active form of being is maybe one of the reasons why we can identify identify her so well with like motherhood and, and feminine grace. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, I have no good segue to our next segment, so we should probably <laughs> we should probably move along to the misinformation segment. I think Andrew is bringing the goods today and has a few news stories. So, uh, Lauren, I think you know the rules, but just to recap, Andrew's going to give you three news articles, and you have to choose one of them, which is fake. Two of them will be true. One of them will be a fake news article, and you have to identify the fake news one. I'm here if you need a lifeline, you want to phone a friend Ooh, to okay. uh, help you discern. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, uh, Andrew, let's go. So two truths and a lie, basically. <laughs> exactly. It is yeah. like two okay. truths and a lie. And as a, as a segue, Zach, I'm going to rearrange my stories to keep the, the royal family train Perfect. rolling here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's do that. Great. Okay, here we go. Now, uh, kind of... Um, as a uh, mark of my kind of uh, identity as a pop culture guy, all three of today's stories have something to do with entertainment. So these are all Ooh. kind of entertainment related stories, but they uh, touch on other matters as well. So here we go. All right. Number one, if true, is from the Mercury News. And the story, uh, the, the headline is, Harry and Meghan weren't the only victims of an invitation screw up for Queen's funeral. Here's a little more. Uh, the the uh, author of the article says, while fans of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have pushed the idea that the California exiles were deliberately singled out to be snubbed and humiliated during the 11 days leading up to, the, to Queen Elizabeth II's funeral, they might consider the case of American satirical musician Al Weird Al Yankovic. Yankovic, who once performed at Clarence House for, then, for the then Prince of Wales, now King Charles III, um, received an invitation for a funeral-related event that was later rescinded because the powers that be realized that he had been sent the invitation by mistake. Okay, so Weird Al That's Yankovic fantastic. invited <laughs> to a, it, it doesn't say the funeral, but to a funeral-related event um, but then that invitation was rescinded. Okay. What is a funeral related event yeah, other than like <laughs> a wake? You know, there's like a, like a, co a funeral cocktail is kind of a strange thing. If you're not invited to the funeral, the article simply okay. says, if true, the article says yeah. a funeral related event. So okay. I'm not sure what that All right. is. All right. So that's number one. Here's number two. This is from Fox news. If true, the headline Chicago suburb rejects Harrison Ford statue over cost and actors bullying memories. Okay, here's a little more. A Chicago suburb reportedly decided against a pitch this week to build a statue of actor Harrison Ford, who attended high school in the city. Um, an alderman on the Park Ridge, Illinois City Council said they, they I don't know if it's a he or a she, if true, <laughs> they were concerned over the cost of a statue, that the pitch had come from, an out, from outside the city and they were concerned about whether Ford, who was reportedly bullied when he was a teenager, would appreciate the recognition. So Park Ridge, Illinois, not going to build a statue to Harrison Ford because he was bullied there. Um, if true. Wait, so he, okay, I, I misunderstood, or maybe I just sort of misassumed when you read the headline. I thought that you were saying that Harrison Ford is being canceled because he had been a bully. If previously. true, the story is the opposite. That in fact, yeah. he was bullied and that the memories are so painful to him that he would actually wow. not appreciate. 
being remembered in his hometown. That is, Again, that must be some, some if painful true. bullying. If true. Painful bullying. If okay. True. Okay. So <laughs> we've right. got uh, Weird Al. We've got Harrison Ford. Okay. Here comes number three. This one's from the Daily Wire. And if true. And the headline is Hollywood A-lister says he'd be, quote, arrogant not to consider presidential run. Here's a little more. Hollywood star Matthew McConaughey is acting like he wants to be president. The dazed and confused star who has flirted with a gubernatorial run in his native Texas told attendees at San Francisco's Dreamforce conference this week that he would be arrogant not to consider a White House run in the future. Okay. He'd be arrogant not to. Did he, did, be, is there any more, did he provide any more context to that claim? That's a- he would be arrogant <laughs> not to consider wow. a run for the White House. Okay. That's all I got. Okay, those are your three choices. What do we think? All right, Lauren. All right, all right, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent see. reference. Good. Okay, so first one. I feel like this, um, this weird owl funeral-related event is a little too weird not to be true. Uh, so I, I just, I don't, I don't really, I, also I'm not very familiar with Weird Al, so I, yeah, I just, hmm, okay, I'll leave that one puzzling, but I'm not, not, not so bullish on that. But I guess, okay, but we're saying two truths, one lie, okay. And then the third one, the Daily Wire one with Matthew McConaughey, that's also ridiculous, and I feel like it is something that Matthew McConaughey would say, though, and probably the Daily Wire would enjoy reporting on. And I'm still just confused by the um, – I don't quite see the the psychological realism of the second one with Harrison Ford and the concern that he wouldn't appreciate the statue enough to warrant it being installed. So I guess my gut feeling would say number two is the, is the lie. The other two the, are true. The Harrison Ford The one. Harrison Ford is the lie. Yeah, All right, but, Zach. Do you want Zach, to? Do you have any? Yeah, different. No, I, that that was gonna be my guess as well. My my own reasoning was um, that the McConaughey one sounds like something a Hollywood A lister would say, <laughs> and the Weird Al one uh, just I would kind of, you, you said it best, Lauren. It seems too ridiculous to not be true because it relates to Weird Al. And just with anything with Weird Al, I just expect I just expect complete hijinks. Um, yeah. <laughs> So I would also go with number two. I, I think that my hunch is that there's something going on with a Park Ridge statue of Harrison Ford, but it is not true that they decided not to pursue it because he was bullied in that spot. That's my guess. Okay, you guys, I am I am so incredibly proud of myself. I, I have stumped you and um, <laughs> and uh, I, I thought for sure you'd see straight through the Weird Al one. I did that one for okay. my son who listens to our show on the way home from school with my wife. So um, okay. nice, he's kind of nice. like obsessed with wow. Weird Al at the moment. So yeah, totally, totally made up. Um, nice. I'll start with that one then. That it, well, someone, someone else was, was snubbed, but it wasn't Weird Al. As far as I know, he okay. has not ever performed at Clarence House or, or indeed have any connection to the royal family. But the story I'm, actually I'm, was. I'm rather, I'm rather delighted to hear that. Actually, this, this is this is good news. Yeah, <laughs> it probably it probably is. But no, it turns out it's it's a much more mundane mundane situation. But but too bad for the person who was snubbed. the The story was about uh, a woman named Princess Mary of Denmark, who mm. was in fact invited to a funeral related event. Um, but then I don't know why they said that because later in the article it turns out it was the funeral itself. But uh, oh. she was then 
uninvited. She was invited by mistake. Her mother, Queen Margareta II of Denmark, was invited. She's the third cousin of Queen Elizabeth II and a longtime personal friend. So she was invited and her son escorted her as her plus one, but her daughter was not invited and had to be uninvited. The, uh, British, the British Foreign Office confirmed to the Daily Mail that it had sent an apology to the Danish royal household by the Danish embassy. The regrettable error was made because of the Foreign Office having to send out so many invitations within a short space of time. So Weird Al had nothing to do with it, but poor Princess Mary had to sit at home. Wow, you yeah. definitely got me. Uh, nice. The most shocking, well the most shocking part of this is that the Park Ridge community decided not to build a statue of Harrison Ford because he was bullied there. <laughs> well, let me let me just quickly tell you about quick, quickly tell you about okay. that. Then apparently in two thousand and seven or two thousand seventeen, in a GQ article, he he said that he was he was short and geeky and that he was bullied as a kid that they would push him down this hill or something. And apparently, this Park Ridge mayor Marty Maloney came across this article and he says, based on some things I've heard just through Park Ridge lore about Harrison Ford and leaving Park Ridge, I would just want to make sure he was comfortable with what we're doing if we're taking that step on this. They should, so, they should just title the statue, so The Fugitive. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Were they so, going to make like a little short, geeky child representation of Harrison Ford? I would assume like it would be the, the man, dashing, handsome Harrison yeah. Ford we all know and love, but... I they should have them hilarious. side by side, you know, like the big Harrison Ford, like putting his hand on the little Harrison's forehead, yes. like oh, shoulder, yeah. and say, like everyone right. has hope. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is so funny. Well, there you have it. And then the last one, Matthew McConaughey. Yes, he he did. It, it's very much in character. He said he would be arrogant not to consider, and then he he went on to say this quote: "Yeah, I'll consider it in the future. I'd be arrogant not to. Absolutely, I would consider it." If I got into any form of politics, I'd be remiss not to go also in as an artist and a storyteller, help put a narrative together. You're the CEO of a state and a nation, a lot of compartmentalization and choices to be made. They scare me, but I'm not afraid of them. He says, Can they I scare just... me, but I'm not afraid of them. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so funny, like to tie back to the to meritocracy. Yes, like, I was thinking the same yeah, thing. Everything yes. has become managerial, right? Like yeah. the, the state is run by a CEO and not a public servant. It's yeah. all about just figuring out the right systems to make it work. And uh, Well, but you also have to be an artist and a storyteller. But you also have to be an artist that, and a storyteller, yeah. right? But that's right. mostly just marketing, which is also, you know, hackable. Um, question for you, you both, would you consider becoming president of the United States? And if not, how do you, um, how do you justify your arrogance in not considering that? <laughs> no way, man. No way. Not the life so for arrogant. me. So arrogant. Andrew. I know I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm just a hopeless <laughs> egomaniac. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's I so might funny. consider president of Texas before president of the United States. The Republic yeah, of Texas. Yeah, yeah. When it yeah. secedes. Yeah. Though okay. I imagine Matthew might, Matthew McConaughey might be gunning for that role before he guns for the presidency of the yeah, US. That's we'll fair. Did, but didn't, so the reason why, when you first said that news article, Andrew, I thought maybe this one's false because I think I had seen a line where he had pretty firmly said, I'm not running for governor. I'm not interested in that. Um, cause there was all this talk, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, like maybe he'll challenge, um, uh, Greg Abbott. Sorry, what's thank you? Maybe he'll yeah. challenge Governor Abbott in Texas. And then I think he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So I was kind of surprised that he would then say, oh, I'd be arrogant not to consider president, <laughs> she, she, CEO of the United States. It's amazing. 
Yeah, he's and rumors have been floating that he'd run for like mayor of Austin or something. Because okay. yeah, Whole Foods has all right, all right, all right, and like mm-hmm. neon lights <laughs> in Austin. So which Whole Foods one? The the sixth street one or whatever third street, whatever it is, the one downtown. Yeah, the one downtown. Okay. Nice. Yep. yep. All right, guys, it is time to go to the close read section. Lauren, you're going to take us away on this. We have this this wonderful article. Um, wonderful, not in the sense that I agree with every word of it, but just wonderful in that it's very thought-provoking. By Mary Harrington, and the article is called Peter Thiel on the Dangers of Progress. The tech billionaire discusses Silicon Valley, Christianity, and Apocalypse. And um, as a brief way of introduction... Uh, I will just describe that uh, Mary wrote this after having uh, served as a sort of co-convener of a seminar with Peter Thiel, I think earlier this year. Uh, And as I was reading this for the first half, I was thinking, wow, this is really good stuff. Where's the lie? Meaning I'm agreeing with pretty much everything in this. And then we got to the second half and I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) A little too far there, Peter Thiel. Maybe there it is. Okay. All right. Anyway, over to you, Lauren. What's this article saying? Awesome. So... For, let's see, a bit more background, the article came out at the end of the summer in July, and the seminar that both Mary Harrington and Teal were on together was hosted at the Zephyr Institute at Stanford. And so it was a nice blend of Silicon Valley types and Washington politicos, as Harrington says at one point in the piece, as well as just sort of academics local to Stanford. And the title was- um, Yeah, by the way- yeah, just real quick, shout out to a friend of the pod, Nathan Pinkowski, who's the research fellow and director of academic programs at the Zephyr Institute. So if you're listening, what's up, Nathan? Epic title, The Machine Has No Tradition, a seminar on technology, revolution, and apocalypse. So yeah, we all have FOMO at this point. Yeah, and, for sure. But thankfully, the article does a bit to allay, allay those fears. So um, a bit, the, I guess we start off with a very helpful kind of introduction to, to who Teal is. Um, he's one of, he's actually known as the sort of godfather of the PayPal mafia. So the group of the original founders of PayPal back in the late 90s, um, who have since gone on to build some of the most impactful companies in Silicon Valley. So uh, Elon Musk is one of the um, notorious PayPal mafia members. And Teal himself, his trajectory post PayPal was to go on to found Founders Fund, the VC fund, and he was an angel investor in Facebook, of course, and has since been also um, founder or co-founder with Joe Lonsdale of the big data firm Palantir and continues to use a lot of this, the sort of political and cultural as well as financial capital he's since stored to make some moves in the political world as well. And it's interesting that Harrington brings all of this up at the beginning of the piece, because I think it sets up um, well the point that she makes at the very end, which we'll get to, which is namely that it seems like this kind of post-liberal order we seem to be moving rapidly towards is increasingly marked by um, old school patrons of the kind of Benici type, like Teal and like some others, um, like all kind of many concentrated around Silicon Valley who are exercising a kind of outsized and in some ways alarming uh, influence over culture based on private wealth. And so it's interesting that Harrington starts there 
And she at one point even likens Teal to Lorenzo de Medici, right? One of the yeah, that, that was of, it was sort of like a strange throwaway line though. Like yeah, I thought she was, was. going to explore that thread yeah, a little bit more, yeah. and she was like, "He's basically like one of the the, yeah, the Medici." Like, yeah, so patrons of the yeah. Renaissance, right? Yeah. And um, anyway, she I think she'll she'll loop back to that in the, at the very end of the article. But from this brief introduction, she then goes on to frame Teal as a critic of liberalism sort of in the same conversation as someone like Patrick Deneen, whose Why Liberalism Failed takes a kind of different tack for why this project of, of a liberal order was flawed from the beginning. And I imagine this sort of chunk of the piece is where you were finding most of yourself agreeing with, um, Zach. So yes. basically she says that, okay, from Deneen's perspective, um, we think that a lot of what's wrong with our society today, whether it's like people being atomized onanists, I think was the phrase from last yes. week, yep, that's um, right. to a lot of our social institutions decaying, people shortage on housing, for example, government doesn't seem to work, um, general decay in morals, decadence coming from the entertainment industry. Uh, Weird Al, all of these crazy things. <laughs> he didn't get a shout out, but that's kind of the general picture. Harrington says from Deneen's perspective, this is coming from a fixation on progress that sort of takes radical individual autonomy as the mark of what it means to move forward in society. Whereas Teal says, actually, it's a lack of progress is why we're seeing so much stagnation morally, politically, culturally, et cetera. And so I think what's interesting is Teal goes on to sort of flesh out a bit more of, of why he makes the case that in a zero growth world that hasn't seen any of the great kind of technological promises uh, that something like the Jetsons or Star Trek or even Star Wars seem to forecast back at the beginning of the space age, um, the reason um, that basically he says this is a bad idea is because when we don't have any growth, when technology doesn't go from zero to one, as he would put it in his like bestseller, then suddenly we have people fighting over a limited pie. So it's no more about like trying to make the pie bigger, but trying to squabble over who has the bigger piece. So from Teal's perspective, as Mary Harrington reports, this is kind of where we get a turning inward into displacement activities, as he puts it. So video games, smartphones, social media, the metaverse, there's a sense that the sense that the technological progress that we've seen since say like the seventies has been so focused on our communications and not so much in like the physical world of atoms, but rather the world of bits and information that suddenly we're all like living in a super advanced, like fake world while housing is crumbling around us in the actual real material world. And I think that something that Harrington didn't mention, which I really wish she would have is it's kind of ironic that someone who made it, his fortune, or at least a large part of it, investing in Facebook and building a big data firm like Palantir uh, would be making these kinds of critiques. It's, you know, there's a bit of cognitive dissonance there. Um, same from like meritocrats critiquing meritocracy, right? Like maybe it just comes from the people who helped cause the problem know it best. Uh, yeah, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on that. And of course, there is Teal also makes the connection between this kind of squabbling over limited resources to something like woke ideology, 
which he says is actually just a, a fight for people for, for limited academic jobs, uh, which was interesting. I don't think that that's certainly all of the story, but that's kind of the first part of the piece. And then we move on to more of Teal's take on what the solution for getting out of this stagnation should be. But maybe we should pause there um, and kind of field some thoughts before going on to more of the vision that made you a bit antsy, Zach. Yeah, sure. That sounds good. Andrew, you want to start here? Well, a couple a couple of things. Um, the first is I grew up watching James Bond movies, and so I have a I have a kind of natural aversion to the kind of millionaire eccentrics with thoughts about the future. Um, I just sort of immediately go to like you know undersea layers and you know space layers and you know lots of layers. So anyway, so I'm always I'm, Peter Thiel to me seems like kind of like a Bond villain. But he's definitely a definitely a smoke filled room kind of guy for sure. Kinda, yeah. And actually, Harrington even kind of acknowledges that at the beginning that that's kind of like one of the takes on 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 who Peter Thiel is or whatever. But I'm also um, I'm also very interested in him. Um, I know, and the piece mentions that one of his uh, the piece mentions that he was teaching a seminar or he's teaching his part of the seminar on Rene Girard. And so Rene Girard was was um, his teacher at Stanford right at the end of Girard's career. Um, Girard is a really fascinating figure. He he articulated the the scapegoating theory, uh, sort of mimetic desire. It's 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 a great theory. I mean, it's sort of one of those things that like once you kind of look learn to look through the lens of seeing the world in terms of mimetic desire and scapegoating, you kind of can't see it any other way. So you kind of sometimes need to like take the lenses off and like remember, okay, there are, it's not the only way to like think of the world, but um. But it's a really interesting theory. And Gerard was a Catholic and a Christian and a literary scholar. And, um, you know, he was somebody who really at the very end of his life after 9-11 was very interested in uh, apocalypticism, really. I mean, he really felt like we were living in the end times. Um, and so that's something that I would wonder what Teal would think of. Like, I wonder, or as, I'll put it the other way. I wonder what Gerard would think of, of Teal's view of progress in that way. Um, because it seems to me that Teal is kind of a, a right Hegelian. Um, he, he seems to sort of have a, a view of history, which is, you know, it, we're sort of moving in a particular direction that there's a kind of, that there's a kind of logic to it. And that, you know, and he, and he does point out, and maybe we want to get deeper into this, but he does seem to sort of understand as Hegel did, I think that Christianity really was the engine behind it all that, or, or that sort of, it kind of made sense of it. Um, in a way that pre-Christian um, kind of just natural law-oriented classical thought didn't quite uh, understand. I, I don't really, I don't really agree with Teal on that, um, if that's what he means. Um, but uh, I do sort of see what he means. Um, but then, yeah. So maybe we're not ready to go. You know. So I was sort of tracking with that for a while. I mean, I'm not, not, not entirely. Uh, into the kind of Hegelian view of history, but I'm sort of thinking, well, that's that's kind of a that's kind of an interesting way. Until it seems like he's saying, you know, the solution is like to our stagnation, which, um, well, I'll bracket that for a second, but that our solution is sort of like more progress. That you know, like you know, we, we've got to sort of press the gas much harder than we than we than we know know how to do. Um, I'll leave that for a second, and then and then just say this final thing, which is. I was thinking throughout, at least in the first half of Ross Douthat's book, uh, The Decadent Society, that, you know, Douthat sort of identifies a lot of this stagnation with the word decadent. And I don't think Douthat has the same 
kind of eschatology as Peter Thiel does. And I find myself very sympathetic to Douthat's view, like believing that we've sort of run out of frontiers. And so to Douthat, it's sort of like the, the next frontier is going to have to be something like either the return of Christ or like an alien invasion. Like he just kind of can't see anything other than some kind of like external, like upheaval as being something that can kind of like move us forward if we're supposed to go any farther forward. So I'll stop there. Um, and maybe Zach, you have a, a different view. Yeah, before I definitely have a few comments before we, before I voice some of those though, can we peel the onion back a little bit on the Hegelian view of history, Andrew? Mm -hmm. And can you, um, maybe for listeners who are not as familiar with that lens through which to view history and historic development, can you explain what that is a little bit? Well, I'm not a great Hegelian. Uh, maybe, maybe Lauren, you, you know, some Hegel, but I mean, my understanding is that you know, Hegel, Hegel believed that humans are on this trajectory of growing more free. So we, there was sort of a, there was a time when like one was free, right? Like in a kind of, you know, dog eat dog world kind of, you know, state of nature, right? And then more were free. And then ultimately more and more and more are going to be free. And so this is why Marx likes Hegel's view of history, right? Even though arguably that's not at all what Hegel what Hegel was getting at. Um, there's a great article by DC Schindler um, that was published recently where Schindler is really like trying to make the case that Hegel's eschatology is just like very, very biblical, you know? And so he's, he basically believes that it's totally okay to quote, you know, to immunitize the eschaton. You've heard like, don't immunitize the eschaton. Sometimes people say like, don't, in other words, don't like sort of apply otherworldly, you know, promises to today's world. Um, but, you know, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is among you, right? So, like, there is a sense in which, like, heaven heaven has come near. Uh, but the problem with Hegel, according to D.C. Schindler, is if you're not a Catholic, you kind of don't have the, like, physical understanding of how heaven has come near in the Holy Eucharist, right? Like, in the incarnation, right? Like, Mary becomes this sort of, you know, this, like, vessel of this immunitizing eschaton sort of thing. Anyway, that, that's a whole other thing. But so... A lot but, of people, but also, but also not because I think it like it 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 highlights the deficit in at least interpretations of Hegelianism uh, for the past you know two three centuries. So, right. I mean, it's always the now and not yet, and and this is the thing. I just don't I don't know if there's an account of that in in some in something like Teal's view of progress. Um, so yeah, yeah. Lauren, anything to add? Yeah, on the he oh, Hegelian stuff. This is super interesting. Yeah. So I think. Maybe one way of, of kind of putting a, a Sparknote summary on the Hegelian view of history is that the human subject becomes increasingly free as human consciousness develops over time. And it kind of climaxes conveniently with the human subject becoming aware of himself in the writings of Hegel, right? So it's like suddenly, course, yeah, yeah a classic. <laughs> um, like, yeah, human consciousness kind of like reaches its apex in this recognition that sort of all things have been unfolding toward a greater revelation of like the world spirit, the truth. Time is theodicy kind of thing. And um, what's it's interesting to put this in conversation with this piece and Teal's understanding of history and progress, because I read this as basically like Francis Bacon transported from like 17th century into 21st century. And, yeah. and what I mean by that is 
maybe it would be helpful to, to first kind of read a few quotes from the article to give people some color on what Teal proposes, at least according to Harrington, to be the kind of way forward out of stagnation. And a lot of it comes, I think, from Teal's understanding of Christianity as offering a positive vision of the future. And I'll, I'll, sh- I'll shift into kind of expository mode and just to try to like lay out Teal's view, qua Harrison, um, or Harrington, before we jump into critiquing it. So this is all Teal, right? The idea is that Christianity gives us a positive vision of the future. It gives us something to hope and to strive for. It gives us a kind of telos for science and technology. And as as Teal seems to understand it, that's basically the Christian idea is to like expand man's dominion over earth and to grow um, into like greater perfection as we grow, ideally in like relationship with Jesus Christ. But in this sense, at least in the Teal version of things, it seems to be that growth is through our technology and our material mastery over the world and over nature and eventually over nature inside ourselves. So here's, here are a few quotes to kind of add a dimension to these ideas from the article. This is Harrington quoting Teal. The Christian critique of transhumanism, this idea that humans should sort of evolve into more machine than actual biological humans, should be that it, transhumanism, is not radical enough because it's only seeking to transform our bodies and not our souls. And then this is Harrington. To him, a more, to Teal, a more naturally Christian world was an expanding world, a progressing world that hit its apogee in late Victorian Britain. It felt, and this is Teal now, it felt very expansive, the world, both in terms of the literal empire and also in terms of the progress of knowledge, of science, of technology, and somehow that was naturally consonant with a certain Christian eschatology, a Christian vision of history. Then somehow the stagnant ecological world that we're in is the one in which there's been a collapse of religious belief. I want to say that they're somehow sociologically linked. So to summarize that, like in Teal's view, when we did have a, a Christian empire, like the British one, this again goes back to the royals, nice, nice connection. There was this sense that you have to kind of evangelize progress and civility. Here understood as like increasing, increasingly better material conditions in which humans can live, right? Like better education, better housing, better utilities, longer lives, um, et cetera. And that somehow the Christian idea that we have to work for a better future is tied up in, in the motivation for creating this kind of material progress on earth. This is coming out of like Bacon's New Atlantis, basically. And Francis Bacon, for listeners who may not be familiar, was a, um, a, a statesman, lawyer, scientist, father of induction, father of the scientific method, writing in the 17th and 16th centuries, who was really the first person, as one of my Oxford profs put it, to, to come up with the idea of progress. And he himself was a professed Anglican, though that is debated, um, who held that it was actually our Christian duty to try to expand man's mastery over nature. And in so doing, we could reapproach the kind of harmony that man experienced 
with the world before the fall. So it's quasi-Pelagian, which is where I feel yes. most uncomfortable. And you can yes. also see, Andrew, how it's also a little bit Hegelian in the sense of trying to recover this sort of innocent freedom that the subject had before the imposition and the kind of Hegelian theology of the other who then made him unfree. So yeah. that was a lot. But Yeah, I also think if I could just add, you know, I, I think it's, there's just a lot of his sort of, his, there, there's just a lot left out, I think, of the kind of uh, historical accounting here. I mean, like, I, I mean, arguably, like the devastation of World War One, and then World War Two, and coming into the atomic age, and the realization that our progress has resulted in our ability to destroy every single person on the planet. Um, I mean, it, it calls to mind for me, you know, the well, it 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 makes me want to embrace a much different understanding of progress, like the one namely that C.S. Lewis talks about in The Abolition of Man or in, you know, in some of his like great quotes, like he says, we all want progress, but, you know, uh, sometimes, but if you're on the wrong road, then it's the man who gets off the road and on the right one who turns out to be the most progressive, right? So, I mean, I guess my concern with Teal would be like, I just think, yeah, I mean, transhumanism of the body and the soul and like all these, that, that just all sounds like the wrong road to me. So, I mean, I just don't, I don't really want to like, I don't want that kind of progress. Uh, I suppose is what, uh, you know, is what is the way that I would sort of come down on that. And, and um, yeah, I don't know, Zach. Well, I think this discussion is great. As uh, Lauren, you were talking, I was just thinking that before you brought it back to Hegel, I was thinking that he really sounds like a sort of Baconite Hegelian, you know, trans transported to modern times because he embraces this very um, Bacon like idea of scientific progress. And he pairs it with this sort of Hegelian understanding of a developing consciousness in ways that I think are dangerous for a couple of reasons that we can, we can, you know, talk about depending on the time, but I know we are, we're, we're almost out of time. So I just have a couple of quick comments. First, the, the way this article pits the sort of Deneen theory of stagnation against the Teal theory of stagnation, I think is interesting. And I'm looking for the, oh, here we go. Yeah. So you, you touched on this already, Lauren, in your, in your introduction, but basically Mary says, post-liberal thinkers such as Patrick Deneen argue that many contemporary social ills are an effect of the way the liberal project cannibalizes social goods, such as family life or, or religious faith, in order to pursue narrow metrics, such as on the left, personal freedom, or on the right, economic growth. I think that's, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a worldview with which I uh, mostly agree. Uh, then she goes on, Teal sees many of the same ills as Deneen, but offers a strikingly different framing. We're consuming ourselves not because the fixation on progress is inevitably self-destructive beyond a certain threshold, but because material progress has objectively stalled while we remain collectively in denial about this fact. Now, the interesting thing here is that I think both of these things can be true at once. Uh, Teal can be rightly pointing to the lack of progress. I think he's absolutely right in pointing out much of what he sort of decries as sort of fake progress and a zero growth world. He can be right that that is happening, and he can be even right about why that's happening in part. And Deneen can be right about why ultimately the entire project will fail. And I'm sympathetic to both of those arguments, um, the, maybe less so to the Teal one, at least uh, as, as you follow it to his conclusions, but certainly to the Deneen one. Uh, maybe a couple of examples might suffice. I've heard many a thinker on the right, you know, Ben Shapiro, for example, Shapiro has talked before about how there's never been a better time to be alive in human history. And how does he know that? Well, because look at wages rising across the board and mean household incomes are higher than they've ever been. And we have more mastery over more diseases than we ever had in history. Um, and those are all based on a very 
narrow definition of human flourishing that really doesn't have much meaning. And, and as Teal points out, they're also, uh, they also sort of fall victims to, to these sort of accounting tricks. So for example, yes, it's true that, yes, it's true that wages have risen, but wages have risen while people have had to, had, you know, two parent families. And so like, so, so real, because they've been forced to have both parents, parents work out of the home so that they can provide for a family. So yes, you know, you have more nominal dollars coming into the home, uh, but actually you're, you know, you're not actually employing any more people net because you have to pay the, uh, the caregiver to take care of the family. And when you would just had, you could have had, you know, both parents take care of the family previously. So there are these like accounting tricks that actually, um, make what, what sounds like progress initially, uh, turn out to not be progress at all. And there's also the fact there's this, there's this new book called, um, I think it's called why oh, men without work. It's by, uh, the AEI scholar, Nicholas Eberstadt. I haven't read it, but I've seen some of the, the chatting about it. I want to read it. I'll get it from the library. But Eberstadt's pointing to this really troubling trend, it fits right in with both Deneen and Teal's diagnoses, I think, of men, especially young men today, who are just not interested in working. They, they're not holding jobs. They're not actively looking for jobs. They're okay to not do that. And they just want to do other things. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for this, all of, all of which or many of which Eberstadt uh, explores in his book. And I don't know if he explores this sort of teal type framing. I'll, I'll be curious to see if he does. But I'm interested in this teal side of it where he's sort of pointing to illusory progress. And what I mean by that is not just the accounting tricks, but also the sort of the false promise of, of technology that's supposed to usher in a better life, but never actually does. And instead just allows people to pursue their own well-being in a very radical, autonomous way, uh, a la the type that Patrick Deneen points out. So as an example of this, think about like cryptocurrency. I know at least two people who have quit their full-time jobs because they were doing so well in investing in cryptocurrency. And if you know anything about cryptocurrency, the technology holds great promise and the, the technology could revamp the entire financial infrastructure at some point in the future, but it hasn't yet. And there's no form of cryptocurrency investing at this point that is not simply just mere speculation. And so uh, what, hap what, what happens, what has happened in the cases of the two people I mentioned and you know thousands of other young men and young women for sure, but I'm talking about young men because of the context of uh, Eberstadt's book, uh, the, what has happened is these people have been pursuing radical autonomy in a way that benefits no one else. There's no one who benefits from them, you know, speculating wildly in the cryptocurrency market. It just benefits them and they're content to sit in front of a computer monitor and just do this and hope to strike it rich. And because of the, the wild sort of irrationality of the crypto market, many of them have been successful in doing that. Uh, and they no longer need to work. So there is no actual, you know, net value to society. There's no advancement of human flourishing happening here. There's just wild, wild speculation happening in the cryptocurrency market. And this is the type of zero progress that I think Teal rightly is concerned about. We have a really advanced uh, way of handling financial transactions in a way that could, you know, almost eliminate financial fraud and increase transparency for the global financial system. And instead, what's happening is people are basically getting rich off of it uh, to their own, uh, personal enlargement and not working because of that. That's the type of advancement that we have now. And I think that's a big problem. Similarly, like just think about your, your iPhone. It's been forever since Apple came out with an actual evolutionary leap in iPhone technology. Yeah. Um, every time they come out with a new one, it's just like, oh, this is cool. But what did you do? You increase the screen brightness, you increase the screen resolution. You know, now it has a, has a fully 5g compatible antenna, you know, now it's Wi-Fi antenna can handle twice the twice the speed. I mean, that's a that's cool, I guess. But does that actually 
change any of the fundamental features that I use my phone for? No, not really. Yeah, and they're I, all just like iter- iterative jumps. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's such a great point, and something I greatly appreciate about Teal is once you get away from the more apocalyptic vision, he's talking about like finding a cure for dementia, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, you know, helping exactly. people find affordable housing so that millennials and Gen Zers can you know set up stable lives and start to fix some of these social problems we're finding downstream of the stagnation. And you see this a lot in the VC space, which is why I think Teal is such a great critic of that industry as well. It's the it's the mimetic mechanism happening yeah. again, where everyone is just trying to make the next iPhone or make the next Facebook instead of trying to focus on these bigger problems that would actually advance human flourishing in a tangible way. And I think where Teal um, misses the boat is the blind spot that material progress does not necessarily come hand in hand with moral progress, which gets to your point, Andrew, about uh, what about World War One? Like, didn't we didn't we face this same question like a century ago? And um, that's where it's it's interesting to put him in conversation with Deneen, who's saying like we need to think about progress in in terms of virtue and in terms of avoiding the moral impoverishment of the individual as the sort of collective becomes more and more materially rich. And so like, if we could just have both of these critiques and hold them together and realize that actually maybe they complement one another. And um, that would be a more interesting, I think, and more complete vision of what a post-liberal progress could look like. Yeah, I would just add one more thing, which is just, I, I would just, I'm just maybe concerned about what is, what is the end of humanity that Peter Thiel really, really believes in? Um, you know, that, that to me is the most important question with regard to any, anything related to progress. Right. Um, so that he, I'm encouraged that he thinks like Christianity is really, really important. And he does seem to even be pointing to something like Christian renewal is like the, you know, kind of to, to, uh, this relates to the phaser article, actually, Zach, that we were talking about the other week. Um, you know, I mean, it, it really, it's spiritual renewal is, is really the most important component, but, um, but, but what is the end, you know, I mean, what is the end of a human being to live forever? Um, yes. Uh, but how, uh, here? No. So, uh, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm curious about that into you. I'd love to, love to talk to him about it. Yeah, I would as well. I, I mean, I share your encouragement on one level or I share your, um, your, your happiness on one level at seeing him sort of cite Christianity and religious faith. But that, on the other hand, though, it, so- it sounds and feels a little bit like a slap in the face to have him sort of just appeal to Christianity as a way to justify his impulse to just have this sort of progress ad nauseum that is not directed anywhere discernible. There isn't really any clear telos to the sort of progress he's advocating. Um, and I think, for example, when he talks about the transhumanism thing. And he says the problem with it is simply that it doesn't go far enough because it doesn't affect the soul. I mean, that is, that's sort of like a, I think he thinks he's being sort of cheeky in making that critique, but he's exactly right on one sense. And that's that, yes, the primary thing we should be concerned about is the soul and transhumanism does nothing good for the soul. And in fact, can do a lot of things that are deleterious for the soul. And he says, it's like, for example, you know, the word nature doesn't appear anywhere in the old Testament. Well, that's fine, dude. But guess what? There's a story called the Tower of Babel really early on in yeah. the Old Testament. That's all about 
exactly this thing that you are driving towards. Yeah. So I found his, um, I found his glossing over of the entire Christian tradition on this question to be, uh, rather disturbing. And I wish you would dig just a little bit deeper on that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. And, um, the whole question of what exactly does Teal mean by Christianity is an important one that is unclear. Yeah. Also the soul, there is a sense in which like transhumanism sort of threatens the the mind body unity that we take to be so important to the you know metaphysical understanding of what a soul is um yeah so in that sense it is a little frustrating that christianity is kind of whatever teal wants it to be in this article yeah yeah i mean i'm glad that he's thinking of body and soul but i wonder i mean my hunch is that he he's thinking of the soul as something within the body or what i mean you know you are you are a soul you are you are an embodied soul so um i'm not i'm not sure if that's what he's what he means uh what he means by soul i wonder there's certainly a, l- a lot left to be desired in his definitions here yeah and to be fair well, i suppose i mean this show. is like let's a secondhand him. conversation i mean you know this you know yeah. mary uh harrington is relating a conversation and there are some quotes but um, mm-hmm. it's maybe a little bit of a different animal than, you know, Oh, tell me more about that. Interview. And you know, that sort of yeah. thing. Very yeah. interesting though. So maybe takeaway well, is, uh, Nathan, if you're listening, we all want spots at the next summer's yeah, let's uh, do it. technology I'll progress. Out, I'll, I'll reach out to Nathan and tell him <laughs> that, that, uh, the Zephyr Institute got a shout out here too. So, um, okay. Any final thoughts on that? We are almost out of time. So we should go to the recommendations real quick and then wrap. All right, nothing hurt. Let's go on. I will go first here. My recommendation this week, very different from all the topics that we just discussed. I was listening this morning on a run to the Barry Weiss podcast called Honestly. And it was interesting because uh, she talked to a Canadian reporter named Terry Glavin, I think was his name. And the debate or the the discussion was about this, what, what they call the Great Canadian Mass Graves hoax. And in this hoax, uh, as the the reporter describes uh, the New York Times and almost every other mainstream publication in the Western world picked up this story that there were just mass graves of Canadian children found mostly outside of these um, Catholic run government sponsored um, grade schools. And it's just simply not true. So uh, I highly recommend that discussion. The reporter himself is a left of center progressive who just is really uh, concerned about the lack of interest in media these days with truth and searching for an objective truth. And so he, uh, he has a great discussion with Barry Weiss on that very topic and the specific topic of the, the great Canadian mass graves hoax. So I recommend that podcast to listeners. That's mine for this week. Andrew, what do you have? My recommendation is an article called Why Jean-Luc Godard Matters by Armand White, who writes about film at National Review. Um, Jean-Luc Godard was uh, one of the great uh, filmmakers of the French New Wave. He lived a long life and just died um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, just uh, many, many great films, including his um, his first feature film, Breathless, which is just a, a truly fantastic film. And Armand White makes such a great case for um, for Jean-Luc Godard being this really this transcendent figure that he he you know he's sort of lumped in with kind of a um, you know, kind of a kind of a Marxist French uh, view, but really he was so much more than that. And especially the way that he depicted men and women is um, about as you're going to get uh, about as good as you're going to get on screen in the 20th century. If you haven't seen the movie Breathless, please watch that movie. It's so great. It's a it's an homage to American film noir. 
a really great movie and I really enjoyed Armand White's piece, uh, Remembering Godard. Great. Thank you for that. All right, Lauren, close us out. Yeah. So on, on the note of progress and all the ways that this idea is complicated and comes with all sorts of benefits as well as costs, I have to recommend my favorite audiobook of all time, which is Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff, narrated by so good. Dennis Quaid. I love it. Oh my gosh. Uh, it's a wonderful sort of nonfiction novel um, written by the, the sort of Mark Twain of the 20th century that traces the way that the space age, the, the first Mercury 7 program grew out of the post-war test pilot culture um, with studly stars like Chuck Yeager, um, the original pilot who broke the sound barrier and how um, like the changing idea of what a pilot is and how our old sort of notions of heroism change as um, so-called progress starts to to oust old ways of thinking about bravery and service and um, what it means to have the right stuff. So have fun. That is a yeah, great one. I have not done the audiobook, oh, but I have yeah. read the book and I, I love the book. It's so yeah, good. Yeah, I think that's a, a rare case of when the audiobook actually makes the book better. So okay. I mean, I can imagine Quaid does a good job, but yeah, yeah I will. Uh, I'll check out the audiobook for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much to both of you for joining me on yet another episode of What a Week. Lauren, it was great to uh, have you join us as a guest. We'd love to have you back on sometime. And to our listeners, if you want to send me any feedback, go ahead. Zach, Z-A-C at creedlepodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.